Hello, my name is Adam Kaufman, and I'm thankful you're joining us today on the Up To podcast. Before we get started, I want to tell you about a group that I'm grateful for, and that is Town Hall, Cleveland's most popular restaurant, and one that I can say is the only place my wife tells me she can eat every meal, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Town Hall was the first all-non-GMO restaurant in the U.S. a few years ago, and they're now expanding into Columbus, Ohio soon. I'm also very selective about who we choose to partner with for this podcast, and it was with open arms that I embraced the idea of partnering with Bobby George and Town Hall. To learn more about what they're up to, you can visit townhallohiocity.com. Put simply, private equity is part of the solution, not the problem, and it's a force for good, not evil. Hello, I'm Adam Kaufman, and you're listening to the Up To Podcast. I've been fortunate throughout my career to be networking, serving, and working with some of the most successful and influential leaders in America. Eight years ago, we started Up To as a live event series, which showcased leaders who I thought were as humble as they are successful. For me, the humility piece is very important as we identify these leaders who can hopefully inspire others. Over the years, I've interviewed trailblazers from the fields of medicine, from business, from the military, from nonprofits, from politics, and more. We really focus our interviews on the non-business aspects of their lives as we found there is a real thirst to explore their hearts and their minds in maybe atypical ways. So time and again, attendees of Up To asked us to expand the event so that more people could participate and benefit from the special dialogue taking place. And that's why we started this podcast. I'm so glad you're with us today. Today, I'm speaking with business and civic leader, Stuart Cole. Stuart is a trustee of the Cleveland Clinic. He's co-chair of the Museum of Contemporary Art, an honorary trustee of Oberlin College, and not to mention the founder of Velisano, a bike to cure fundraising event. Stuart is co-CEO of the private equity firm Riverside, which currently has an impressive $8 billion under management. Let's find out what Stuart Cole is up to. Stuart, I'm so excited to have you as a guest here today at Up To. You're such an accomplished business leader and engaged philanthropist. You're frankly one of the busiest people I know. So tell us, what have you been up to? Well, Adam, I've uh, continued now in my uh, 25th year started the 26th year at Riverside, to be really um, very focused on how we continue to advance Riverside. In fact, in some ways, I feel like I'm just getting started. And I know my better half, my work husband, Bela Sigacy, we're we're co-CEOs and co-owners of the firm, feels the same way. We think this kind of simple idea of starting with uh, companies at the smaller end of the middle market and then working uh, very hard over an extended period of time to make them both bigger and better companies. We think that simple idea continues to work, to have great merit. The concept is pretty simple. The execution is challenging. And what we've seen now is the ability to do enough of these smaller transactions such that the sum of them start to have some scale, which is the numbers you were quoting. Well, I want to get to the co-CEO arrangement in a bit. I know that's really worked successfully for you both and for the company. But first, $8 billion under management. Do you ever like worry? Like That's a major responsibility to be a good steward. 
of that amount of capital? Or is it something that you get used to just like an athlete gets used to pressure on TV to perform? How do you deal with something as grand a scale as that? Those of us who don't have to do that find it really amazing. I do worry. I think all of us at Riverside to some degree worry. We recognize that we're in a hyper-competitive market and that to some degree you're only as good as your last fund or or arguably even your last deal. Hmm. The investors, we've got wonderful investors and they've been incredibly supportive, but they they are charged with generating the best possible returns for their institutions. So these are important investment theses that you are responsible for executing. Right, and they are serious. They're extremely professional, these large institutional investors. And they have uh, what I would describe as perfect information because the data on returns is today quite available and they're easily able to benchmark our returns against those of any other firm. And I wish I could tell you we were the only private equity firm in in the universe or even in the (laughs) U.S., but uh, depending on how you define it, there's probably around 5,000 private equity firms globally, probably 3,000 of them operating in North America. So it is a very— I didn't realize there were so many. Yeah. It's a very competitive space. Isn't that even – I think there's only 4,000 companies on the stock exchange. <laughs> I mean, yeah. It's it, even more than that. Well, you know, there's – people often point to the fact that there's more hedge funds than, than there are uh, stocks. It is a lot. And for the record, while um, I think we've achieved significant scale relative to the size of investments in companies we invest in, in the grand scheme of the capital markets, we are tiny. Hmm. And even in the grand scheme of private equity, we are very small. I'm proud of the uh, over $8 billion of assets under management. And again, it, does, it is meaningful given the size deals we do. $8 billion does not sound, your word, small to uh, most of us. It's still really impressive. And you would never say this. We could talk for hours, but you've won so many awards personally for your leadership. And your firm has won so many awards in your industry as well. Yet, you remain so humble when you talk about how small you are and You mentioned your co-CEO in the first moment that we're together today. It's just very impressive. Your humility continues to um, remind us all what types of leaders we could be. But you are a master in your trade. You're in the Business Hall of Fame, et cetera. Did you ever think you'd be in the private equity industry? Did you always know you wanted to be a deal maker? Or let's go back in time a little bit. When I think about my journey that brought me to where I am today— you know, I think about, maybe I didn't under, recognize it, but when I was growing up, I held uh, a lot of different jobs. My guess is you did too, Adam. Yep, still do. <laughs> yeah, I, I learned a lot from each of them, even though they were, you know, short order cook or, or delivering newspapers. Newspapers were these things printed on paper that you used to throw at the doors. <laughs> I still like them, but I know I'm an oddity at age 48 to get them delivered to my house. They were not glamorous jobs, but I, I, I learned something from each of them. And I clearly, to some degree, liked working, and I clearly liked having a little bit of money in my pocket. When I went off to college, to Oberlin College, and that name may come up again because I am kind of passionate about Mm -hmm. Oberlin, I got a great education, majoring in economics and government. Along the way, I got involved in the student co-ops, and through my involvement in the co-ops, what I came to see is I really liked business, and, and that form of business, which had a social mission attached to it, I found especially rewarding, so much so that I chose not to go what would have been the more obvious route, which would have been, you know, to go on and get a, a PhD in, in, in economics or to go to law school or what a lot of my um, 
my colleagues or, or fellow students were doing at the time. I just liked, again, I liked making a little bit of money. I liked being entrepreneurial. I liked the, the fact that there was a social mission. And in fact, I liked it all so much that my first job out of Oberlin was working with student co-ops, now being paid, but working to promote student co-ops uh, across North America. Hmm. And that started a 10-year run of working professionally with cooperatives, ultimately not just student co-ops, but credit unions and housing co-ops and food co-ops and workers co-ops and agricultural co-ops. And it was heady, and, and I enjoyed it, and I was learning a lot. But ultimately, I, as, I, as I approached the 10-year mark out of Oberlin, uh, this would have been 1987, I was starting to f feel an itch, partially just if I didn't do something different soon, maybe I never would. And also the sense that maybe there was something more more challenging, that more rewarding. Those that are I normal feelings. Ten years, you kind of reevaluate. Yeah. What have you done? What do you want to do next? Simultaneously, I was reading about these things. In those days, we called them leverage buyouts. Mm. Today, it's, it's private equity. Drexel Burnham or those Bingo. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It was, it was a very heady time. It was getting a lot of attention in the press and, and even in, in some of the kind of popular press. Wall Street, Gordon Gecko, greed is good. A very unfortunate. Right. Because... Uh, my my experience, no connection with private equity. That's the opposite of this podcast theme. Plus, we're aging ourselves talking about movies from <laughs> the 1980s. It was an interesting time, and I kind of said to myself, boy, it would be really challenging and fun and rewarding to work on these types of transactions. Despite the fact that I had never taken a finance course, um, I, didn't, um, I didn't, my MBA never took a business course. You're like the antithesis of what a lot of people think of in terms of private equity or the vultures, so to speak, reputation, breaking up companies. You're the opposite of that reputation. And that's a lot of why you've been invited here to be a part of our emphasis on humility. Can you talk a little bit about the differences between the reputation of private equity versus the reality? Is it accurate? Is it inaccurate? Is it fair? Is it unfair? I believe that the perception of private equity is quite, historically has been quite far off the mark. I watch private equity carefully. I know a lot of private equity practitioners. I certainly see up close and personal the work that our team does with these companies and the way that we are able to transform not just the company, but the employees and the communities in which they operate. Put simply, private equity is part of the solution, not the problem. Mm -hmm, I agree. Uh, and it's a force for good, not evil. Is that universally the case? No. There Are there bad actors in, in the publicly owned company realm? Sure, we read about them in the newspapers all the time. Are there family-owned businesses that are bad actors? I'm sh of course there are. Newsflash, every industry has <laughs> right. bad actors. But I, do I believe that it's rampant in private equity? Not at all. So it's not as prevalent as the conventional wisdom suggests. By, by no means. That's interesting. Um, and, and when we do it right, every successful deal has its own story, but at the core of every story is our ability to create a bigger and better company, which means creating more jobs, better jobs. It means creating more opportunities for the vendors that serve that company. It means being more innovative and in right. how they- Usually uh, helping the community it's located in. All good things. And you guys are in communities everywhere. I read- uh, I think you're on four continents, mm -hmm. Spain to Sweden, Texas to Tokyo, mm -hmm. Munich to Melbourne. Do you personally travel a lot still? I'm sure you can choose to get involved in certain facets of the firm's work. Are you still enjoying traveling? 
Yeah, I do. I do still travel a lot, and and I must enjoy it because I've traveled my entire career, going back to the days when I was going to Latin America, Africa, and Asia with the co-ops. Have you been to Lebanon, by the way? I have not, and would have great interest in going to All right, Lebanon. We need to make that happen. Yeah, you do. <laughs> <laughs> I will say that our kind of travel is not uh, in any way glamorous travel. It's it's commercial airlines, it's business hotels. In many cases, I will uh, have as I'm leaving a city, I realize that I literally did nothing more than arrive at the airport, find a way to some office or company, sit in conference rooms, maybe sleep in hotel rooms, and then go back to the airport. I I have uh, found a few guilty pleasures when I travel, and the most important one is when I can squeeze in a bike ride, I do. And it's becoming easier and easier to do that. You travel with a bike? I know. The the amazing thing today is um, more and more cities are bike-friendly. Today, if you want to get a, a good bike... You can rent it almost anywhere. In some cases, they'll, they'll literally deliver it to your hotel. Hmm. Increasingly, I'm just taking advantage of, uh, of the, um, the bike sharing programs. And most cities today have them where you can just oh, yeah. pick up a bike. and. So do you do the casual, like what I would do, recreational riding? Or do you get like a performance bike and so I'll do, put I'll on do, a helmet? And... Yeah, I'll do both. But, in, but increasingly, um, like when I go to New York today, I will say that city bike which is their, their fixed mm-hmm, program, mm-hmm. is um, is becoming my predominant means of getting around uh, the island of Manhattan. That's amazing. And, and I can get to and fro from most of my appointments, most of the time, on a bike considerably faster than I could in a cab. And do you just have a satchel on your arm? Or like, how do you carry your... So, so I carry a backpack and I have a collapsible helmet. And you mentioned the word helmet. And mm-hmm. I, I want to see your um, listenership continue to grow and... Therefore, I would urge all of them to to wear helmets uh, <laughs> right. when they're riding a bike. Thank you for caring for the <laughs> up-to community. Yeah. What is it about New York City? You brought up that capital of capitalism. It's just like no other city in your line of work. And I spend more of my time, like I said, in venture capital and with entrepreneurs. And so many cities want to become, so many regions want to become the next Silicon Valley. But I don't hear too much about becoming the next New York City. I think it's just forever going to be... One of a kind. It is remarkable in terms of the amount of capital. I'm defining capital here as not just financial capital, but also intellectual capital, human capital, yeah. And Riverside is co-headquartered. I've mentioned now several times um, my co-CEO, Bela Sigethi, and he he lives and works in Manhattan. And when uh, we joined forces in in 1993, I, I, I couldn't convince him to move to Cleveland, but he couldn't convince me to move to New York. So we, we've, we, we, became this dual headquartered company, although there was really not much to HQ in those days. Hello, Up To listeners. Right now, I'd like to take a moment to talk to you about Calfee, Halter, and Griswold, a full-service corporate law firm with attorneys throughout Ohio and in Washington, D.C. I'd also like to emphasize how selective we are about organizations with whom we choose to partner for the Up To podcast. And it's with much enthusiasm that we do partner with this law firm that is close to 120 years old. Calfee's mission has been to provide meaningful legal and business counsel to entrepreneurs and investors, private business owners and nonprofits, public corporations. I've referred many successful entrepreneurs and investors to Calfee knowing how well they'd be taken care of. And it's for those reasons that I would encourage you to visit their website, calfee.com. That's C-A-L-F-E-E.com. Thank you very much to Calfee. 
So you mentioned your co-CEO a few times, and to me, that's yet another sign of your humility. Was that a big decision to go into this co-CEO arrangement? I would say it was a big decision for Bela. He founded the firm in 1988. I was still at Citicorp at that time. Okay. Almost from the beginning, we talked about joining forces, but I was learning the business, applying my trade at Citicorp while, while Bela was alone at his dining room table, literally starting Riverside. Five years later, he at that point, there had been some changes at Citicorp, and I was going to leave. And um, he made a remarkably magnanimous offer that I should join him, and we'd be 50-50 partners. And and I'll say co-CEOs. That, that was not the title we used at the time, and, and there was nothing to CEO. It was just a couple of us. but um, Two guys in a truck. <laughs> yes. and uh, But Baylor had already done a couple of successful transactions and started to build um, a brand and a reputation. A track record. Yep. And importantly, one based on what we've later came to refer to as a kinder, gentler approach to private equity. You talked about the reputation of private equity, and, and we were keenly aware in those days that many people viewed it as negatively. And we had, in fairness, had observed some bad behavior in the industry uh, that we didn't think was necessary to generate, you know, we, we could put food on our uh, on our tables without behaving badly. Mm-hmm. And if we did, you know, we'd, we'd feel better when we're shaving in the morning, look at the mirror, or we'd sleep better at night. Were there many fewer firms in general back oh, then? Oh, yeah. Well, it wasn't, in those days, private equity wasn't an industry. It, it is today. So back to the co-CEO arrangement, when you look at the most renowned CEOs in America, none of them have co-CEO title. I can't think of any. I think there's one or two C-suite arrangements that I can think of. How has having a co-CEO arrangement benefited the firm and the stakeholders? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I'll, I'll say that um, while I agree with you, it's unusual in the corporate world. Uh, in private equity, there's many more examples of it than you would expect, and I, I often wonder why that is. And I've come up with uh, ultimately two reasons. One is because when you get it right in private equity, the uh, financial rewards can be significant. So there's enough excess, if you will, to be able to afford some luxuries that uh, if you if you have to uh, be more competitive and skinny down, it would be hard to bandwidth capacity and cost. Just you know, how, how, you mm-hmm. know, having two. It's a luxury to have two CEOs. You talked about roles and responsibilities, and and to oversimplify only a little bit, our jobs are are consciously duplicative, and we do this basically. We do the same thing, so hmm. one person could replace both of us. That's not perfectly true, but it's close. Mm-hmm. The other reason, though, and I think the much more compelling reason, is that if you think about what we do for a living, which which at its core is um, figuring out uh, which company, which industries to invest in, which companies to acquire to decide who should run them, what the strategy should be, and when we should sell them. Every one of those decisions is judgment. It's never obvious what the answer is, and it may even be the case that there isn't an exactly right answer for each question. The Excel spreadsheets only go so far. Yeah, There's you, a lot of hunch, you can, intuition. You, you can, you can uh, torture a spreadsheet, and eventually <laughs> it will say yes. Right. Um, so that's judgment, it's pattern recognition, it's experience. We have an extraordinarily, Bale and I have an extraordinary luxury of having somebody who's damn near perfectly aligned in terms of incentives, just together trying to make the right judgments on all those key questions. And and by the way, if you were to spend a, a day around Riverside, which we would welcome, 
I think what you'd find is we that gets pushed down all the way through the organization. It's it's never the Bale and Stewart show. There's uh, your offices are so collaborative. I mean, I've only been in the local one, not in New York, but you can tell the culture is a collaborative, yep. not every man or woman for herself situation at all. Uh, and you feel that. And I do see that in other companies, unfortunately. I, I'm glad to hear you say that. It's it's important to us. You know, we believe that we believe in the collective wisdom. We believe that more and more diverse judgments lead to better decisions. And again, if you, you know, when, when we're making the decision of, of what companies to invest in, it's never just me and Bela. It's, it's, there's, there's a whole team involved. I'd like to talk for a few minutes about what I call elective time. We all, as busy people, we only have so much elective time in our lives. And there are boards we might be invited to join. You are on several of the biggest ones. How do you decide what to spend your elective time on? I, this is perhaps my favorite topic when interacting with busy, accomplished people like you because it's such a valuable resource, our time. How do you filter through the opportunities? Well, let me say at the outset, this is a, uh, a work in progress, and I don't, I don't consider myself to be uh, excellent at it. But I think the key to it is focus. So you mentioned the boards I'm on, and I uh, choose to be on a re- relatively few boards and to try to have more of an impact on those few boards. So if you're on four, and I didn't count them, are you asked to be on 14 and you picked four? Or like, how does that even work? After the global financial crisis in, in 2008 and I I maintained literally a just-say-no policy mm-hmm. until... Finally, I agreed to join the board of directors of the Cleveland Clinic because it is such an important institution. But, um, you know, to, just to quantify, I, I'm, I'm an honorary trustee at Oberlin, having served two six-year terms, and we, we have term limits, and I'm a, I'm a believer in term limits, both for the institution and the individual. I'm co-chair of the board of MOC, as you mentioned, Museum of Contemporary Art. And then uh, that means for the clinic, I'm the most engaged being on the board of directors there and uh, being uh, quite involved with Velosano and the capital campaign. But Velosano, let me interrupt. We have a lot of listeners not from the immediate area. That Velosano idea came up four years ago? Is it four, year this, four now? Th- this will be the sixth year when we ride in July. Forgive me. Yep. And it's become quite a successful multi-day bike ride for different levels of cyclists, mm-hmm. all geared towards cancer right. in the children's hospital. Is well, that right? Well, beyond children's hospital, it's, it's raising money for cancer research, cutting-edge, life-saving research that's done right here in Cleveland by our friends and neighbors who are doctors and scientists largely uh, with the Cleveland Clinic. What a huge success this has become. And in the five years that we've held the event so far, we've raised uh, over $17 million for that research. Wow. This is all about finding finding cures more, sooner, faster. It's very nimble money. It's almost like venture capital money. So a doctor or a scientist has an idea. We'll put up the, the risk capital so they can test it. And if they get a great res- uh, get the anticipated response, then odds are they're going to be able to raise much larger dollars from places like the National so Institute of Health. So do you have like an investment committee for that, or how do you decide which projects get the support? So we have we have better than an investment committee. We have a, a peer review process. Great. Uh, I'm not a peer, so I don't review. Right. Um, Dr. Brian Bolwell runs that process as the head of the TASA Cancer Research. Um, he's got a, a team of doctors and scientists. 
they, we, we have uh, far more applications than we have money, and they make those allocations. And, and, they, and, and I believe they're doing it very wisely because we're now seeing that the amount of dollars that we're leveraging is, is starting to grow to the point where it's going to be more than what we're raising. Tremendous. And how many cyclists participated last year? Uh, just over 2,000. That's tremendous. Congratulations on what you've built. Another one of your electives you have mentioned, Oberlin College. Do you think that your first hiring city group through another Oberlin grad, does that play into how you look at new hires today? Talent is so important. You know, there are certain schools where there's a, such a strong affinity that you can't help but think about students coming out of those schools. Look, I, you know, like probably like all of us, I feel biased because because I did go to Oberlin. But I think the more important point I would make is that I think we have a deep appreciation for the value of a liberal arts education. In general, Wall Street, if I can use that term, does not um, recruit out of Oberlin. Hmm. Wall Street tends to recruit out of a relatively narrow group of schools. And they're not liberal arts colleges, probably. No, they, they tend to bias in favor of, of schools where they can track candidates who have come out of an undergraduate business program mm -hmm. as opposed to liberal arts, although some liberal arts as well, I'm sure. And I understand why they do that, but I, I do believe they're missing a bet, which is that there's great talent everywhere and that um, you can uh, be a, a real contributor to Riverside or to another private equity firm even if you didn't grow up in one of a few towns in, in America, even if you didn't um, go to one of a few schools in America. Mm -hmm. And I mentioned earlier the, the benefits of diversity. I do think as an, an industry, private equity needs to do uh, really change its mindset of where talent can come from. And Riverside can do a much better job in diversity. But I do think our own experience coming out of Oberlin leads us to understand that sure. you, you can find talent in many other places. Hearing you talk about Oberlin and the positive aspects of a liberal arts education, I'm a product of liberal arts, Wittenberg University. If you could go back and talk to the 21-year-old version <laughs> of yourself, you're only a few years older than that now, but <laughs> what advice would you give 21-year-old Stuart Cole? maybe career advice or, or anything. Take more advantage of the opportunities while you're at Oberlin, while you're at college, to explore more areas, to try more things, to learn more things. I've come to really have a deep appreciation for what the folks at Oberlin who trained in music, what that... It's known had, as one of the best music conservatories in the country. Li literally in the world. Mm-hmm. I also have come to see that the folks that participated in, in um, uh, athletics, some wonderful things come out of that in terms of teamwork and camaraderie. Did and you play sports ethic. in college? Um, no, uh, I did not. I mean, I, I, I futzed around a little bit, but mm -hmm. I was not in, in organized sports, and I, I regret that in retrospect. Mm. I, and I think, that's, I think that's a shame. And now I see, you know, I see when we hire folks that trained musicians – uh, how to perform as part of an orchestra. We hire athletes who had to be part of a team. Uh, they bring a lot to the organization that I, I would have benefited from. I probably would say to myself, um, have a little more fun. I Don't get me wrong, I, I enjoyed it, but I, I worked, always worked hard. And when I look back on it, I say to myself, I, you know, I didn't have to work 
that may be that hard. That's a, maybe so don't. do you try to practice that now and remind yourself not to get too serious? On my sheet here, talking to you, I have smiley faces to re- remind myself to smile. <laughs> and I'm glad you're laughing now. But, you know, we all need to remind ourselves maybe not to take ourselves too seriously. Yeah, no, it's a lesson I, I, I can continue to learn I, uh, w- w- without a doubt. Well, let's remind each other of that. It takes a, a humble and humorous man to agree to uh, show up for a speech in front of 400 entrepreneurs when I was hosting a conference, and you came in in your bike gear. Mm-hmm. And this was my crazy idea, but I still have people talking about it years later. But you said yes right away. That was a brilliant idea, partially because it is memorable and, and differentiated. And We part- were all starched up in our suits, and mm-hmm. you looked you looked awesome. Well, and I actually rode in on a bike. <laughs> it was and great. hopped off. And, you know, I, I, I don't get a chance to wear lycra spandex in public uh, often enough. But seriously, we were also trying, that was the very early years of Velisano, and we are trying to build awareness, and that was a, a thank you for that, because that was Perfect. a great way to do it. Perfect. And thinking about the younger versions of ourselves, do you ever think about who you're role modeling for? Who's watching you? It's an important question, and I think... Every now and then, I'm reminded, I, I have a colleague named Graham Hearns, and I think you know Graham, and Graham, he's, he's often reminding Bela and me of the op- opportunities or missed opportunities to really lead and to really help develop our folks and to model. Because he's a generation younger than you, so he has a little different lens to look at these things. Right, and, and he perceives us as being uh, far more influential than we perceive ourselves. That's um, why I'm asking this question, because you are influential. He, he would agree with you. Um, I, I, I don't necessarily see it that way, but he does remind us of that. So what if he has any credibility with you, and I know he does, what do you do with that information? Do you commit to some mentoring, or do you just spend more time with certain people, or do you write about certain topics? How at all does Graham's urging yep, come out? All, all of the above. We've added uh, uh, something. We we have a lot of acronyms at Riverside. Uh, it's it's part of our quirky culture. Give me an example of one. Well, I was about to mention one. So uh, we have the MMMMM, which is the monthly missive for the masses, which is a, a very simple one-page communication that Bale and I put out to all of the Riversiders on a wide variety of topics. And um, maybe that inf- has some influence. We present more often using particularly now uh, video technology to all of our folks. And now podcasting. This is your first podcast ever, so it's an exciting new medium. I will never forget my first podcast. Love that. In a couple of months, we'll have the Global Riverside Conference when all of our folks will meet in person. And that's uh, an extraordinary um, uh, luxury to be actually in one place, in one room with, with the entire Riverside team. And it's uh, always very exciting to me. I always leave these meetings feeling that, uh, again, there's just so much opportunity, so much potential, and we have, we have so many uh, great, great people at Riverside. But there is also uh, a significant um, one-on-one piece to it. So Graham is, is forever reminding us of the value of having lunch with one of our colleagues, of picking up the phone and calling one of our colleagues, and, and he's right. Well, it's an extraordinary luxury and of great value to spend this time with you today, Stuart. So thank you so much for giving us some of your valuable time here at Up2. And Graham's right. You're influencing more people than you realize. And 
now via this podcast, even more will be hearing from you. So thank you. Thank you, Adam, and right back at you. We covered so much with Stuart today. My big takeaways are, one, you can always learn something from any job. Two, business is not just numbers and spreadsheets. Judgment is key. Three, try more things. Explore more opportunities when you're young. Four, hiring and working with trained musicians or team athletes can add a lot to an organization. And number five, most importantly, have a little more fun. I'm Adam Kaufman, and I'd like to thank you for joining us on this Up To podcast. I sincerely hope that you enjoyed today's episode, and I encourage you to subscribe to our new show wherever you listen to podcasts or visit us at uptofoundation.org. A special thank you to the law firm of Calfee, Halter, and Griswold for their role in making this podcast possible. Visit them at www.calfee.com for further information. And to our friends at Town Hall, you can learn more about their restaurants by visiting townhallohiocity.com. Up To is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. A special thanks to our producers, Bridget Coyne and Sarah Wilgrub, our account manager, Connor Standish, and our audio engineers, Eric Coltnow and Dave Douglas. I'm your host, Adam Kaufman. Thank you for listening to the Up To podcast.